Hello and welcome to the weekly UK true crime podcast. I'm Adam. Thanks for joining me today. Firstly, some good news. I'm pleased to say I've managed to keep my dog away from the microphone this week, so we're good to go. For the first time, we head to beautiful Northern Ireland and the capital Belfast. With a population today approaching 350,000, Belfast produced author of the Narnia series, C.S. Lewis, the footballing genius, George Best, even though he did play for Manchester United, and my all-time favourite snooker player, Alex Hurricane Higgins. Now, if you think snooker and then modern players are boring, go and read about Alex. He was many things, but he certainly was never boring. Belfast was best known in the early 20th century for shipbuilding, with, at the time, the world's biggest and most productive shipbuilding yard building the Titanic. Okay, before you start considering the obvious parallels of my podcasting career, and I use the term very, very loosely, I think we should rapidly move on to today's show. It was Sunday the 27th of February 2005, a month after the murder. Who will be next? asked the placard carried by the McCartney family as they were clapped and cheered to a makeshift platform outside the short strand shops in East Belfast. Over a thousand people had gathered in a show of support for the family and to protest about the murder of Robert McCartney in a Belfast bar the previous month. A murder suspected to have been carried out by the Irish Republican Army, or the IRA. Many listeners will know of the IRA as one of several armed movements in Ireland in the 20th and 21st centuries dedicated to the Irish Republicanism movement. That's the belief that all of Ireland should be an independent republic. It is or was, depending on your view, also characterised by the belief that political violence was necessary to achieve that goal. And there are many horrendous examples of horrific attacks carried out by the IRA, as well as other paramilitary groups in Northern Ireland, both with similar and directly opposing views. The community was angered by the IRA refusing to take responsibility for Robert's murder. On the 16th of February 2005, the IRA had issued a statement denying involvement in the murder and calling on the perpetrators to take responsibility. This was an unprecedented demonstration as the IRA was seen as the protectors of the small nationalist enclave in the city where 3,000 Catholics were protected by peace walls from the 60,000 Protestants surrounding them. This demonstration suggested that trust in the IRA no longer existed. It was shocking enough for Republicans to kill an innocent man and one of their own community. But the real damage had been caused by the continued cover-up, intimidation and lies. People once proud of Republicans for fighting for justice for all were united against what they said was the reality of peacetime paramilitarism, a local Goodfellas gang which residents said had been out of control for years Robert McCartney was just 33 when he was killed. A father of two young boys aged two and four, the forklift driver was saving for his upcoming wedding to fiancée Bridgine Hagans. He was even doing some additional work as a bouncer to raise cash for the big day. You know how it is with wedding suppliers, just treble the price. <laughs> you know it. It was a Sunday night in Belfast. Robert was having a drink at McGuinness's bar with an old friend, Brendan Devine. The bar was packed 
as a number of IRA men had come back from the annual pilgrimage to commemorate the 1972 Bloody Sunday killings of 14 Catholic protesters by the British Army in Derry. Around 100 Sinn Féin men arrived back in Belfast on coaches from Derry and began filling the bar. According to Robert's sisters, a senior IRA man accused Robert of making a rude gesture to his wife. Robert denied doing so, but in an attempt to defuse any potential situation, Brendan offered to buy the woman and her friends a drink to apologise. This wasn't enough for the senior Republican, who asked Robert, Do you know who I am? Robert was a mild-mannered man. He was known for diplomacy rather than aggression. Now, he was fully aware who the man was, but Robert didn't feel he needed to apologise, telling the man he hadn't done anything wrong. The situation quickly escalated and an argument ensued. A bottle was smashed by one of the IRA men and this was used to slash Brendan's throat. The fight spilled out of the bar and Brendan told Robert desperately to seize this opportunity to run and escape but Robert wouldn't leave his friend there. As the altercation continued, Robert's mobile rang and the caller could hear clearly what was happening at the scene. There was glass smashing and the caller could hear Brendan saying, I never touched anyone, and a woman desperately pleading with the aggressors to stop the beating. Robert's family understand that around 15 people followed Brendan and Robert out of the bar, where the pair were beaten savagely with plastic and iron sewer rods and slashed from their neck to their navel with knives said to have been taken from the pub kitchen. It was a brutal attack where Robert lost an eye as he was kicked and his head was stamped on. Some witnesses told of a gun being pulled, although this wasn't used. When police officers arrived at the scene, their efforts to investigate the pub and surrounding area were met with an impromptu riot. Rioting by youths, specifically attacking the police, forced them to pull back from the area, which delayed the initial investigation. Police with riot gear arrived later in the evening and they were also attacked. Alex Maskey spoke on behalf of Sinn Féin, which is an Irish Republican political party active throughout Ireland. Historically, it has been associated with the IRA and the Irish government and others have alleged that senior members of Sinn Féin have held posts on the IRA Army Council. However, the Sinn Féin leadership has denied these claims. Surely Alex Maskey demonstrated just how much his party were missing the point when he claimed, It appears that the police service is using last night's tragic stabbing incident as an excuse to disrupt life within this community and the scale and approach of their operation is completely unacceptable and unjustifiable. Robert's family accused his killers of leaving the men for dead before going back to the pub and locking the door. There have been suggestions that the rioting was organised by those involved in the murder so that a full clean-up operation could take place in and around where the murder took place. Clothes worn by Robert's attackers were burned, CCTV takes were removed from the bar and destroyed, and bar staff were threatened. They closed the doors and said, Nobody saw anything. This is IRA business, says Paula McCartney, Robert's sister. Despite the serious of the assault, no ambulance was called, with the two men spotted and picked up by a routine police patrol. Brendan was badly hurt, but he did survive the attack. Unfortunately, Robert died later in hospital. Traditionally, just like other members of their community, Robert's family had always voted for Sinn Féin. 
interviewed after the demonstration for justice for Robert, just a month after his murder, when they must have been feeling so raw. Even at this time, they paid tribute to the sacrifices IRA members and true Republicans had made to protect their community from loyalists, the Royal Ulster Constabulary and the British Army. However, they were absolutely determined that they would get justice for Robert and would not give up until the IRA came clean and made sure the dozen of its members they believed to be involved in the killing were passed on to the authorities. Their steely determination to see justice for their brother was apparent in all they said and did. At this time, his sisters and fiancé had not slept for a number of nights. His sister Paula admitted that she'd not yet cried. We can't afford sentiment at the minute, she said. If grief was allowed to take its natural course, the whole campaign would collapse. The police had an unenviable task trying to find and follow leads. Detective Chief Inspector Kevin Dunwoody said that nothing should justify such a brutal murder. He also refused to directly comment on claims that Republicans were involved in the stabbing, adding, We believe that there is nothing to suggest that this was carried out by any organisation in pursuance of its organisational aims or objectives. I have to emphasise that this is the brutal murder of an innocent man and we are appealing to the public to make sure they give us any information they can to help us bring the person that did this to justice. One month on, police had taken over 150 witness statements. Of 71 witnesses to the attack, none, not a single one, gave the police a full account of what they saw. Most claimed they were in the pub's four-foot-by-three-foot toilet at the time of the attack or on their mobile phone. This led the cubicle to be known locally as the TARDIS, after the time machine in the cult TV programme Doctor Who, which is so much bigger inside than it appears. The family and other short-strand residents believed this unwillingness to come forward was because of the levels of intimidation practised by the IRA in their community. Robert's sisters said the men who killed their brother were walking around the area as normal, going in out of the shops, getting themselves a carry-out, going to the bookies, saying hello to people and saying hello to the family. His sister Catherine added that she'd seen one of the alleged killers, a senior Republican, standing openly in the street in long conversation with the key witness. Their presence is intimidation enough, she said. The family was still very unhappy with the response of Sinn Féin and the IRA, who'd failed to take any responsibility. On March the 8th, 2005, the IRA issued a, even for them, an incredible statement. They said that four people were directly involved in the murder and that the IRA knew their identity. Two were IRA volunteers and the IRA made an offer to Robert's family to shoot the people directly involved in the murder. The family declined this bizarre offer. The IRA duly suspended 12 members and expelled three people some weeks later. Speaking about the murder, Jerry Adams, the Sinn Féin president since 1983, talked about the killing as murder or manslaughter. This added further insult to the family, as the addition of the word manslaughter was part of an ongoing quest to dilute the severity of the murder. Like many in the short strand area of Belfast, Robert's family felt the men were still under protection from the organisation. In May 2005, previously dominant Sinn Féin lost its council seat in the Pottinger area, 
which covers Short Strand, with many commentators attributing the loss to events surrounding the murder. The sisters and fiancé of Robert were doing all they could to keep his case in the glare of publicity. In particular, they lobbied politicians in the US where Sinn Féin had strong support. In March, they were received by President George W. Bush on St. Patrick's Day at the White House and later by MEPs at the European Parliament. In Strasbourg, they received overwhelming support from MEPs for a possible civil action against those alleged to be responsible for the murder. They also met with Bertie Ahern, the Irish Prime Minister, who'd promised that extensive consultations were underway among grassroots IRA members. Politically, this case was at another key time in Irish politics. It didn't really have an effect on support for Sinn Féin in the general election in May, outside of the immediate area where Robert had lived, but it certainly caused damage to the party standing in the US, where Irish-American sympathisers were, they were shocked by the brutality of the killing and also the apparent IRA readiness to shoot the alleged killers. Jerry Adams, the president of Sinn Féin, was not invited to that year's St Patrick's reception at the White House and other pre-arranged US visits were also cancelled. Meanwhile, back in Ireland, the political pressure was mounting on Sinn Féin to encourage the IRA to abandon their campaign of violence so that Sinn Féin could play a role in Northern Irish politics, because other parties refused to accept this until the IRA called a ceasefire and decommissioned the weapons. On the 28th of July 2005, six months after Robert's murder, the IRA made a statement ordering an end to its 36-year campaign of armed struggle against British rule in Northern Ireland, saying, All IRA units have been ordered to dump arms. All volunteers have been instructed to assist the development of purely political and democratic programmes through exclusively peaceful means. Just two months later came a verification statement from the Independent Arms Decommissioning Body that in its view the IRA had put all of its weapons beyond use. This opened the way for the restoration of devolved government in Northern Ireland by January 2006. Whilst the IRA's announcement was greeted internationally as an historic development, many, including the McCartney sisters and Robert's fiancée, were more sceptical. They believed the IRA would continue to discreetly rule the streets of Short Strand and places like it, intimidating people into silence. Even now, the reality on the streets was very different to the public commitment to peace. Robert's fiancé and sisters were all receiving abuse from IRA members and sympathisers in their community. When Robert's fiancé's house was pelted with stones and bottles as she and the boys were sleeping, she knew it was time to leave. The abusive, anonymous letter containing excrement didn't help. The other members of Robert's family also left the area where they'd lived all their lives, never to return. Paula said, I can't live in a place where people involved in a murder think they are untouchable. Chief Inspector Dunwoody was the policeman leading the murder hunt for Robert's killers. Although they'd struggled with witness statements, they did manage to find one witness prepared to testify about what she had seen when driving close to the venue the night in question. And there were also other friends of Robert who had been involved in the altercation. 
Combining this with ID evidence and forensics, they arrested and charged three men. Local man Terrence Davison, 49, was charged with Robert's murder. James McCormick, 36, and Joseph Fitzpatrick, 46, were charged with making an affray. As an indication of the level of tension in the community, Robert's family were taken to court under armed guard, and in the court building, riot police separated his family from friends and family of the accused. The trial began on the 22nd of May 2008 in Belfast Crown Court. During the course of the trial, the court heard excerpts of police interviews with Davison, where he described a row between his nephew, Jock Davison, and Robert's friend, Brendan Devine, which he described as a storm in a teacup. He said the row broke out after a comment that his partner perceived was made to her. Davison said he shook hands with Robert after an amicable discussion about the comment. He said a short time later, a fight broke out between Brendan Devine and his nephew, Jock Davison, which then spilled outside. He told police, People have been hurt on both sides. There were no winners, and I was just hoping that they, Robert and Brendan, would leave the scene and we, Terry and Jock, could have gone straight to the hospital and everybody wakes up the following morning. The trial judge disputed Davison's account that the exchange in the bar had ended amicably with handshakes. He said, Given the affray that clearly erupted in the bar, as evidenced by the injuries Brendan Devine sustained to the throat and the amount of blood subsequently seen by police scenes of crime officers throughout the bar, I doubt the truth of this assertion. On the 27th of June 2008, all three were found not guilty by Mr Justice Gillen. There are at least 10 podcasts that could be made on the strangeness of this juryless trial where none of the defendants even gave evidence in the dock. The sisters' reaction to the verdict was understandable. They were disappointed, but not surprised. Robert's sister Catherine said the lack of justice lay firmly at the feet of Sinn Féin and the IRA. Speaking outside the court, she said that her brother's murder was an embarrassment for the British and Irish governments. She believed that the Irish police have a wealth of information on the murder, but cannot turn any of it into evidence, as fear still exists, and as long as it still exists, we won't get justice. Reading numerous accounts of the trial, it seems very clear that the wrong men were facing the court in Belfast, and a guilty sentence would have been incorrect. In the community, it appears that the real murderer was well known, and had been known almost immediately, but that man was not on trial. So who was the man believed to be responsible for killing Robert? It emerged that Jock Davison, Terry Davison's nephew, was the senior IRA man the sisters believed had ordered the murder of their brother, a claim he publicly denied. Jock had been arrested following Robert's murder, but he was released without charge. It was alleged that during the altercation in the bar, Jock Davison gave the order for the stabbing by drawing a finger across his throat before telling the murder gang, go do what you want with Robert McCartney, which led to his attack and his death. Jock Davison was the officer commanding of the provisional IRA in South Belfast, having inherited the position, locals say, because his uncle, Brendan Ruby Davison, was an OC before him. Through his uncle's connections, Davison was well connected with senior figures in the Republican movement, being pictured on occasions alongside Jerry Adams and other senior party figures. 
On the night of Robert's murder, Davison and his units were a part of a large group of Sinn Féin members who had just arrived in the bar from the Bloody Sunday commemorations. Davison and his group bore some bad feelings towards Robert and his small group of friends. Local people suggested it was Davison's personal animosity towards Robert that drove the incident. Apparently Davison had fancied a woman close to Robert but had been spurned which led to a dislike of Robert and his family. In the frenzied knife attack, Davison, who is wielding one of the kitchen knives taken from the pub, stabbed himself in the hand. Asked by the newspaper, Daily Island, if he had ordered Robert's attack, Davison said, There's not a snowball's chance in hell that I would even involve myself in an incident like that. I totally refute that allegation. It's wrong. It's unfair on me. I understand the family is going through hell, but there's more than one victim in this. I was stabbed as well. I never gave no order. I never gave no hand signals. Instead, he tried to claim he was the person who intervened to calm the situation, and this was when he was stabbed in the hand. He also denied the claim made by the McCartney family that witnesses had been intimidated. He said, I never heard of one case of intimidation. I think if you dig into it, it's non-existent in my view. Jock Davison was one of those expelled by the IRA following the murder. Despite this, he continued to associate with leading Republicans. Soon after the killing, he was spotted in the short strand walking side by side with IRA hardman Bobby Storey. And ahead of the 2005 general election, he was also seen canvassing on behalf of several Sinn Féin candidates. He remained well connected with the Republican movement during the following 10 years and he retained his fearsome reputation. Locals claim that, even after drifting away from the IRA, Jock Davison continued to associate with criminals and could be seen swaggering around the markets area of Belfast with his cohorts. At around 9am, on an ordinary Tuesday morning in April 2015, Jock Davison was carrying out his normal routine, walking to get his paper on his way to work in his local Belfast neighbourhood of the markets. He wouldn't have noticed a nondescript short man wearing a black, waist-length raincoat in an alleyway nearby. As Davison walked past him, the man emerged from the shadows, his hood tightly up. He walked closely behind Davison and shot him in the back. As Davison fell to the ground and lay dying on the pavement, the gunman calmly shot him four times in the face before turning and walking away. There was no rush, no getaway car, and the man appeared to just vanish back into the shadows. To police, it appeared to be the work of a professional hitman, and initial rumours was that it was a man from Dublin in the south of Ireland, and the lack of cars captured on CTV suggested he returned by train. Immediately following the murder in such a public place, witnesses described how the gangland-style slaying took place in front of terrified children, one of whom had cried out, Daddy, Daddy! Police immediately cordoned off the area. Senior investigating officer, Detective Chief Inspector Justin Galloway, commented it was a cold-blooded murder carried out in broad daylight. He said, Gerald Davison was known to everyone as Jock. He was 47, a father, grandfather, brother and son. He was a high-profile community worker in the area in recent years and a prominent member of the Markets Development Association. In fact, 
Mr. Davison was walking to a local community centre where he worked when he was shot. This was a cold-blooded murder carried out in broad daylight in a residential area and it has no place in the new Northern Ireland. For his family, it must have been particularly tragic as his uncle, Brendan Ruby Davison, was shot dead by the Loyalist group UVF close to the scene of the killing in 1988. At the time, Brendan was the IRA's leader in Belfast and he was murdered by a UVF murder squad dressed as police officers. This loyalist group, the UVF, blamed him for assassinating one of its members, Robert Squeak Seymour, in East Belfast a month earlier. Two masked IRA gunmen had entered the video shop Seymour owned and shot him dead in an alley behind the shop. An attempt had been made on Ruby Davidson's life a year earlier when he was shot four times in the arm and back, but he survived this. He'd spent 10 years in jail during his time in the IRA and he was arrested for the first time in 1972, a few months after joining, and sentenced to 15 years for shooting at soldiers. He was released in late 1980, but returned 10 months later on weapons charges. He was also charged with the 1982 murder of Constable Alexander Beck and in 1982 with the 1975 murder of Andrew James Craig in the markets where he'd been taken for interrogation by an IRA vigilante group as he tried to catch a taxi home. Davison was also jailed for a murder the same year of William John Stevenson who was found hooded and shot dead in the same part of the markets after being abducted from the city centre on his way home from a job hunt in East Belfast. With local tensions again running high, the police quickly arrested two men. One was Scott McHugh, aged 27, whose uncle had children with Davison's sister. He's the grandson of IRA murder victim Anthony Monkey McKinnon, who was killed in 1988 over informant allegations. McHugh, who was questioned by police about another shooting in the markets four years ago, had clashed with Jock Davison in recent weeks. He was, however, freed after strongly denying any involvement with murdering Jock Davison. The second man arrested was Brendan Devine, Robert's friend who'd been with him on the night he was killed. He was soon released without charge. So how did Robert's family react to the news about Jock Davison, the man they felt was responsible for killing Robert was now dead. Although they condemned the murder, Robert's sisters said that with Davison's murder, their campaign for justice was now over. Catherine McCartney said, We wanted Jock to face justice in a courtroom, not down the barrel of a gun. But the type of justice we hoped for has now eluded us. We will never see Jock standing in the dock now. Our campaign for Robert is effectively over because Jock's death means he can never be held accountable for what he did that night. The sisters said they were incensed at politicians paying tribute to Davison as a respected and valued community worker. Catherine said, Jock is obviously a loss to his family, but he is not a loss to the community. Jock Davison wasn't a positive person in the community. His legacy to the community is one of death and mutilation. He was involved in numerous murders and punishment beatings. There are dozens of families who lost loved ones because of him or have had loved ones beaten to a pulp in alleyways in the dark of night. This is a so-called community worker who put people in early graves. 
yet nobody is mentioning his victims. The problem faced by the police investigating the murder was the sheer number of people who could have wanted Jock dead. His time in the Republican movement had made him enemies, but two other theories put forward were related to drugs and being an informant. Local people began speculating that the murder could have been to do with the rise of the drugs trade in the city's nationalist areas, where previously the IRA had shot dead anyone suspected of drug dealing. Jock Davison was reputed to be the leader of an IRA group, Direct Action Against Drugs, or DAD, as it was known. Around 10 years earlier, as leader of this group, he was suspected personally in the involvement in the murder of a local drugs dealer, Mickey Moneybags Mooney, who was shot dead as he sat drinking in a city centre bar. Mooney was a career criminal. He was the first to crack the drugs racket in Northern Ireland, and he quickly established himself and his gang by flooding nightclubs and popular pubs with ecstasy. Other illegal substances were soon to follow. At one stage, he even toured clubs and pubs on Belfast Golden Mile, wearing a raincoat with the right-hand pocket cut out. He had his hand in there, and in his hand was an Uzi submachine gun. He simply walked up to bouncers on the doors of the pubs and the clubs, opened his raincoat, flashed a gun and told them, you don't interfere with my business, and I won't interfere with yours. But Dad were on his tail. He was to become the first of a deadly tally of assassinations of drug dealers, which was eventually to reach more than a dozen victims. Mooney was sitting upstairs with his henchmen in a bar in central Belfast in April 1995 when Dad ambushed him. Now that the IRA had effectively declined into a criminal organisation, increasingly operating through semi or legitimate fronts, it no longer had the capability to counter the increasing power of the drugs gangs. This, and Jock Davison's previous history as head of Dad, might have been the motivation for his murder. The other suspicion was that Jock could have been killed as he was an informant, passing information about the IRA to the British government. This was compounded in the immediate aftermath of Robert's murder, where after stabbing himself in the hand, he was taken to the Ulster Hospital in East Belfast, a strange move given that the main accident and emergency units in Belfast are the much nearer Royal Victoria and the Mater hospitals. Witnesses at the Ulster Hospital reported that when Davison arrived, he was met by two men wearing suits and who spoke in English accents. It was taken that these were Davison's handlers. Jock Davison always vehemently denied these allegations, saying before his death, I never ever gave any information on my comrades or my friends during my 25 years in the Republican movement. Any Republican who knows me knows this, he said. There is not one shred of truth in this suggestion that I was an agent. As the police inquiry failed to make progress, Others were looking to take revenge for Jock Davison's murder. On the 12th of August, 53-year-old Kevin McGuigan and his wife Dolores had been to a Gaelic football game with two of his six grandchildren when he was assassinated by two men at his home in the Short Sands area of Belfast just after 9pm. The horrific cold facts of the murder are clear. Kevin was shot six times in the back of his head and his neck as he stepped out of his car outside his house. He died minutes after the shooting, 
which was carried out by two men believed to have been armed with semi-automatic rifles. His killers were seen by his widow, Dolores, as they fled on foot through the myriad of streets, still hooded and carrying the deadly weapons. She'd been in the car of her husband before the attack happened, and they'd just dropped off two young grandchildren before they drove home. A neighbour who went to Kevin's aid described the scene as she battled to save her friend's life. She said, I heard a rattling noise, and for a second I thought it was fireworks, but in my heart I knew it was gunfire. I ran to the front of my house, and I saw a man lying on the ground. I heard screaming, terrible screaming. It was Dolores McGuigan. The man was lying on the ground face down, perfectly still, and I realised then it was Kevin, my friend, my neighbour. I ran to help him, and people tried to stop me, but I knew I had to help him. Another neighbour pushed her way through as Dolores was helped to a neighbour's house. She was in a state of collapse. The youngest of Kevin's children is only about 12, she said. How do they ever recover? This is their summer. This is their life now forever. They are the children of a man murdered in cold blood as he made his way home to them. Kevin McGuigan was a man born in the markets but moved to the short strand area of Belfast when he married Dolores. They had eight children. Locals said he was devoted to his family. He lived and breathed for his children and grandchildren, one man said. There was nothing he wouldn't do for them. He was protective to the point of view that he'd go to the extreme if anybody hurt a member of his family. You'd regularly see him with his grandchildren. He spent an awful lot of time with those kids. The Belfast Telegraph and other media outlets reported that his murder was revenge for the killing of Jock Davison. I quote their article. The IRA had believed he was the gunman who shot dead former IRA commander Jock Davison. Local people said they'd no doubt whatsoever that McGuigan had been shot dead by Republican sympathisers. This is payback for Jock and it's a warning to anybody else who may think of settling old scores of any IRA member, said one source. They continued, given that it's on ceasefire and the political repercussions for Sinn Féin, if responsible the IRA will never admit to killing him. The killing will either go unclaimed or another Republican organisation may even claim it in order to cover the tracks of the IRA. Despite the bad blood between mainstream Republicans and fringe dissident groups, several of these groups denounced Davison's killing and the criminal elements who carried it out. A group styling itself Action Against Drugs vowed to avenge Davison's murder and its involvement cannot be ruled out, but the IRA have to be the leading suspects. They desperately needed to retaliate for his killing in order to prevent copycat attacks in future, whereby those with grievances against the IRA took their revenge. The police service of Northern Ireland's chief constable, George Hamilton, raised the ante by publicly saying that current members of the provisional IRA were involved. But Sinn Féin representative Alex Maskey retorted that this couldn't be the case, as the IRA no longer exists. There had been a long history of confrontation between the IRA and Kevin McGuigan, who had once been one of their most experienced hitmen, probably a major fallout with them. As a fellow senior member of Direct Action Against Drugs, Kevin McGuigan had carried out killings with Jock Davison. Following a big disagreement, 
Davidson had ordered a vicious punishment attack on Kevin, who received what's known as a six-pack. He was shot in the ankles, the knees and the elbows. It was a humiliating attack on a former friend. Clearly Kevin was no saint. Sources believe that he was fearless and ruthless enough to have killed Jock Davison, saying Kevin had nerves of steel and he despised and hated Jock enough to do it. But that doesn't mean he did it. I haven't yet seen the IRA produce actual hard evidence. The police made a number of arrests, including Bobby Storey, the northern chairman of Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin President Jerry Adams reacted to the arrest, describing Storey as a valued member of the party leadership, a person of great integrity and someone he trusts. He's been charged with nothing. I've grave concerns about how all of this current crisis has developed since the dreadful killing of Kevin McGuigan. And I'm mindful in recent times that two families, the Davison and McGuigan families, have both been grieved, said Mr Adams. All suspects were released without charge, and nobody has ever faced trial for the murder of Jock Davison or Kevin McGuigan. If we take it that Kevin was killed in revenge for the death of Jock Davison, was the wrong man killed? The Sunday World reports the following. Some Republicans, many who remain close to Jock Davison, questioned if the killers assassinated the wrong man due to a conflict of evidence. Unsettled by unanswered questions, several said they were shocked by McGuigan's murder, believing the killers acted too soon and without any clear proof. The killers, who were close to Jock Davison and hell-bent on revenge, are said to have grown frustrated and after three months of investigating the killing, became exasperated at both the lack of clear answers and lack of reprisals. This could be more innocent blood now that it's been spilled, and that's the fact because no one knows who killed Jock, not even now a well-placed source said. It has been rumour and speculation ever since he was murdered. Several names have been mentioned, and even the use of a hitman. No one knows, not even the cops. In this highly connected community, these rumours had also reached the other suspect in Jock Davison's murder. If you recall, along with Brendan Devine, another of the men arrested and questioned about Jock's death was Scott McHugh. The rumours persisted that he was involved and friends of Jock Davison put pressure on him to the extent that he also spoke publicly to the Sunday World. He told the paper he had to leave his home as a result of a hate campaign saying, In no way, shape or form was I involved in Jock Davison's murder. The finger of suspicion is still being pointed at me but I didn't do it. The police know it but I'm still being hassled. McHugh, who lived near Davison, hit back at accusations that he shouted something about Davison in the street just after Jock Davison was gunned down. He said, There's a rumour going about that I shouted something in the street moments after he was killed, but I didn't. I never opened my mouth. I'm being blamed over a rumour. I've been blamed for this, and now I believe I'm being used as a scapegoat for others. They aim to harm me, and maybe harm my family also. Despite this public claim of innocence... At 9.45am on the morning of the 6th of May 2016, two armed men attacked Sean's house in West Belfast and he was shot four times. Neighbours said he managed to stagger outside to seek help. He was rushed to the nearby Royal Victoria Hospital where he was in a stable condition. Despite this public claim of innocence, 
At 9.45am on the morning of the 6th of May 2016, two armed men attacked Scott's house in West Belfast and he was shot four times. Neighbours said he managed to stagger outside to seek help. He was rushed to the nearby Royal Victoria Hospital where he was in a stable condition. Luckily, Scott managed to recover from the attack, physically at least. Police sources say a link to the Jock Davison death is just one line of inquiry in their investigation. The two gunmen did not wear masks during the attack, so detectives were able to give a good description of the attackers. It later emerged that prior to being shot in May 2016, Scott had asked police if he could be provided with a bulletproof vest, such were his concerns about this type of revenge attack. Just like Kevin and Jock, nobody was ever charged with the shooting of Scott McHugh. After this, and two other shootings, politicians across the political divide condemned the violence. Stuart Dixon warned that a culture of violence was rapidly developing in the city. Three shootings in the space of 24 hours gives the impression of a growing cycle of violence in Belfast, whether any connection exists or not between them, he said. The thugs behind them need to be taken off our streets immediately. Policing board member Russ Hussey insisted it was clear that our society is still blighted by groups who wish to impose their will on communities through both the threat and the use of violence. Today we've heard about some shocking crimes. When will the crimes of the past be forgotten and not avenged? It's hard to be anything but pessimistic. As I've researched this episode, I've also been struck by the fact that whatever their gangs, politics or histories, the people involved also have families with young children. Why should these innocent people suffer the tragedy of losing a loved one? All we can do, I think, is hope that as these children grow up, they are inspired by admirable role models, people like Robert's sisters and his fiancée, who are able to be strong and fight for what is right. Not being intimately involved in the local communities, it is, of course, impossible to really understand the depth of feelings and sense of injustices and history. However, it is only through the hope and courage of this younger generation that we can ever hope to draw a line under events of the past and move forward without more unnecessary bloodshed. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the weekly UK True Crime podcast. Please head to our website at uktruecrime.com to sign up for our latest offers and I look forward to speaking with you next week. Bye for now.